Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers who are unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. Hi, I'm Scott Postma, your host, and I'm joined by Joffrey Swate, our academic advisor. He's our in-house poet. <laughs> Such pressure. I yeah, know. T- today we'll be talking lyric and verse in education. That's right. So uh, I've, I've asked Joffrey um, really to kind of lead this episode uh, simply because, and, and I know he probably doesn't feel comfortable with me, you know, making, just handing it off. <laughs> yeah. Well, making a big deal about it, but, but he, he is a published poet. Mm. And, and so um, one of the things that we have talked about uh, fairly extensively um, scattered throughout our, our various episodes is the importance of poetry and education. And next week we're going to be doing an episode on language. And so this really just naturally leads into, you know, in the big picture. So, Absolutely. Especially when we start talking about, you know, not only the, the structure and music of language itself, but also the cultural touching points. Right. And you know, that's a part of language acquisition as well. Sure. Well, I'm going to begin. Maybe we'll start with, you know, go all the way back to Aristotle. There's a lot of different places we, we could, uh, you know, begin a conversation with poetry. But this one, uh, for me, um, it, it kind of struck a chord early on in my yeah. education that kind of shaped the way I, you know, thought about worldview and education and all those things. And I think another great reason to start with Aristotle is that, you know, we're talking classical education. Yeah. And although later on in the episode, we'll be exploring, you know, how unique English is and, you know, English verse versus some other languages and the Greek and Latin you'll study. Um, it's important to, to recognize that poetry is universal, that every language is poetic right. and that poetry is a part of one's education, regardless of your time and language. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation because there's a lot of nuggets here that are going to be a a lot of fun here. But so let me read this from uh, Aristotle's Poetics um, and, you know, famous statement most of you will probably be familiar with if you have any um, experience in classical education at all. But Aristotle says in Book 9 that poetry is something more philosophic and of graver import than history, Mm. since its statements are of the nature rather of universals whereas those of history are singulars. By a universal statement, I mean one that as uh, as to what such or such a kind of man will probably or necessarily say or do, which is the aim of poetry, though it affixes proper names to the characters. So in other words, history tells us what has happened, yeah. and poetry gives us all the possibilities of what could happen. Poetry is more philosophic, right? Right, Because it, it gives us insight into human nature. Mm-hmm. Right? We can, as students of history, st- uh, study the siege of Syracuse, mm-hmm. say, and and take from that certain lessons about mankind and examine great men and take from that certain lessons. That's great. But there's a process of extraction sure. that poetry just gives you insight into directly, right? Because it is, as Aristotle described it, not using this word, I think, universal. It is. Yeah, it is universal in in that it, you know, displays all the possibilities of, of human 
interaction, responses, those kinds of things. And he even says um, later on that um, you could take Herodotus and put it in verse, but it would still be history. Right. And so the kind of thing we're talking about when we're talking about the universals is more than just whether it's in rhyme and verse or whether it's written in straight prose. You know, it's really the nature of, of what we're exploring. Yeah. And we are going to talk uh, a little later about the structure of poetry and mm -hmm. and, and how different languages have, have approached poetry. But a lot that we consider necessary elements of poetry are structural. And that's actually not where we start with poetry. Right? With poetry, we have to start with the music of it, the lyric of it, the things that, that make your brain like a good joke would mm -hmm. have that sudden flash of insight, that sudden understanding, that lateral entry into the truth. Could we call it serendipitous in that <laughs> sense? <laughs> we could. What a, what a beautiful word, too. Just, just rolled right off your tongue. Uh, well, I was thinking about that, the idea that there's this pleasant surprise that comes as you're reading poetry, this sudden enlightenment. And, you know, Horace uses that when he, in Ars Poetica, when he says that it must delight and enlighten, mm -hmm. right? That's what good poetry does. Yeah. So, well, should we start with um, a short, uh, a short video clip that we were talking about that kind of highlights the way that poetry has shaped language? Would yeah. that be a good place for us to start? And this, in particular, gives us a picture of uh, language, the English language, the way that the poetry of the King James Bible, for mm -hmm. example, has shaped uh, English culture. And it's a short. Little clip. And when you say poetry here, by the way, you're not talking necessarily about the Psalms or about anything that's versified or shows the Hebrew structures of parallelism. What you're talking about are those musical, lyrical turns of phrase right. that got embedded in the Anglo-Saxon consciousness because they were poetic. Because they were poetic in, in their nature. Yes, exactly. All right. Well, let's see if we can cue this up here. The history of English in 10 minutes. Chapter four, the King James Bible, or let there be light reading. In 1611, the powers that be turned the world upside down with a labor of love, a new translation of the Bible. A team of scribes with the wisdom of Solomon went the extra mile to make King James' translation all things to all men, whether from their heart's desire to fight the good fight or just for the filthy lucre. This sexy new Bible went from strength to strength, getting to the root of the matter in a language even the salt of the earth could understand. The writing wasn't on the wall, it was in handy little books, with fire and brimstone preachers reading it in every church. Its words and phrases took root to the ends of the earth, or at least the ends of Britain. The King James Bible is the book that taught us that a leopard can't change its spots, that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, that a wolf in sheep's clothing is harder to spot than you would imagine, and how annoying it is to have a fly in your ointment. In fact, just as Jonathan begat Meribal and Meribal begat Micah, the King James Bible begat a whole glossary of metaphor and morality that still shapes the way English is spoken today. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I was trying to shut that off. Uh, I hope I hope our listeners could hear that. Um, I tried to turn it up as loud as we could, but just filled. I mean, opens up with from First Thessalonians immediately, right? A labor of love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and these are you know, it's it's funny because the reasons these stick in in your mind are because of the rhythm or often the alliteration, which is a particular strength of English. Mm -hmm. but, you know, the the King James Bible is an outstanding work of English, right? right? Which is a, an amazing thing thing about it. But it's one of the reasons it stuck around as long as it had is that it got embedded in our consciousness. And we use phrases from that Bible, often not even knowing. You know, there are non-Christians use that use those phrases, not knowing that they're from Scripture. Right. You know, and it's funny, like we have to sometimes think about 
how you know phrases need to be created at a certain point like uh, the phrase stumbling block mm-hmm. like where does that come from why don't we just write that it's a stone of tripping right, <laughs> right. W- which is actually what some other languages do right you know it's like well the stumbling block it's a, it's a clear image it's an accurate translation but there is something particularly english about it well it's interesting that they take something like a stumbling block and make it so you know smooth and poetic you know to, yeah. where a block of you know tripping <laughs> would, would almost be exactly what it is yeah. a stumbling block you know exactly in terms of, yes tripping over that those <laughs> words so you we're, we're talking here about english for a moment and um in the way that um you know poetry shaped uh, our modern culture the way that we talk and think about things so yes. it's, it's more than just the language we use but actually these turns of phrase these figures of speech these these images that are created do they shape our worldview do they shape the way we think in in categories of thought Oh, absolutely. I mean, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Right. Scott? <laughs> I mean, like these, the, when these phrase, phrases catch, they actually inform our philosophies. So if, if I think about, about love, and that's one of the, the first phrases I think of, then that's, that's going to tell me certain expectations about what love is mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe they're just so thoroughly embedded, I don't even examine them. But the idea that, you know, I would I would praise a woman from a distance as part of a courtship is not necessarily an automatic thing, right? It's sure. something that has been shaped and and put into our consciousness. And now, when I think about courting a woman, somehow there's a veranda and a courtyard, and I'm serenading someone, right? <laughs> 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 and you know, and there's there's you know, the, the the poetry we can take that idea and strengthen it, or you can even bring bring an idea in. Interesting. What one phrase that always uh, sticks with me is John Donne's poetry. You know that for whom the bell tolls, mm. right? And and so this and that actually is from a sermon. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he was a poet and a famous poet, and that sermon is so poetic. Right. It's not actually like you know. It's yeah. That's that's actually in a sermon, but like you can't help but read it as poetry because it is so lyrical it, it is and, it, and it's it's a beautiful um you know picture of the fact that you know it who who's a toll for you know uh, not just for somebody else but every time it tolls it's for me right right um and then we have from say that phrase then you've got hemingway writing an entire you know one of the the great american novels so to speak yes off of that idea yeah and the, you know the the ability to to, to reference back mm-hmm. right and to, to refer you know previous works refer to others and you know it, it's amazing how even you know a lot of the, the early modern poets um, who are often trying to disrupt and, and remake poetry, uh, were often acting from ungodly principles, their brains were absolutely stuffed full with Greek, with Latin, mm. with the, the great lines of their, of their antecedents. Um, and so that gave a lot of meat to what they were doing. You sound like you're talking about like Eliot or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like, like when you read The Wasteland, there's right. stuff in, in Hindu, there's Greek, there's French, there's Italian, you know, and, and it's, it's not just the, the plurality of languages. Um, it's, it's what is being referenced, right? Mm-hmm. It's what is being referred to. And, you know, to, to the educated person reading that, and uh, for, 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 for this age, I am an educated person. Mm-hmm. I have to go... I, you know, when I read a poem like that, I have to actually go look up what these things are. 
Well, right. yeah, and and most, by the way, you know, as you're probably aware, most scholars do in turn, you know, people people reading uh, Eliot and and spending time, you know, writing their dissertations on Eliot are are doing deep dives into yes. know, various allusions that he that he makes. Probably one of the most um, referential poets in terms of all the different obscure allusions. Yes. Ezra know. Pound was a lot like that as well. Yeah. Well, and Ezra Pound really gave him a start, right? Make yeah. it new. He wrote the essay, make it new. And that was kind of the project of, of Eliot. Right. Um, so, well, so how does this coming back? So the way that language and the turns of phrases create categories of thought, they enculturate us in, in to thinking about the world a certain way. Which um, by the way, uh, just to, uh, I'm going to waylay your question yeah. here and it can come on back, but you know, this is thoroughly classical, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, as as your children are being educated in a, in a classical fashion, as they're engaging with the canon, however it is, like we've already yeah, addressed yeah. that, how, how broad and, and wide that can be, you know, it's it's easy to get caught up and, you know, have I read this book? Have I read, you know, this other book? But really the quotables, and, and th- that's a big part of it. You want to be able to flash to a, or you want to be able to hear friends, Romans, countrymen, mm-hmm. and have a whole complex of thoughts be pulled out of you spontaneously. Already, yes, they're already present just yes. by hearing that. They're present in, in giving you a context. So that that comes back to what, I mean, you almost answered basically the okay. question. Yeah, that this is, you know, this really is philosophical, as, as um, Aristotle said, it's philosophical in the sense that we are... Um, you know, we, we are connecting over categories of human thought, perennial human questions, those mm-hmm. kinds of things by these turns of phrases, which might be a fun exercise if you okay. will indulge me that um, maybe <laughs> we'll pull up some some uh, uh, some poetry, uh, some maybe more well-known uh, and, and maybe some less well-known. And then, okay. you know, maybe... Um, the audience could play along. Yeah, they could play. What what comes to mind? Who who wrote this? What's the context? Or, mm-hmm. or you know, some of those kinds of you know what what categories of thought come up okay. if, if you're up for that. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Hit okay, me. right. <laughs> so let's start with a real easy one: um, the road not taken. Okay, yeah, that's Robert Frost. Two roads yeah. divergent in a wood. Yeah, um, and then the last line is is something about. That has made all the difference, mm. right? Quintessentially American. Yes. Uh, you know, I'm always shocked at how long Robert Frost lived and how far into the 20th century. Like, I mean, he he had conversations with Robert Kennedy. You know, and it's, it's, it's really hard to hard to imagine that. Um, now, but, you, you say this is quintessentially American. Can you talk about that a little bit? So, I mean, we know Robert Frost was an American poet. Yes. But, but how is that poetry quintessentially American? How does this idea of, you know, taking the low, road less traveled, you know, yeah. how is this American? Well, I am the master of my fate, ah, which I'm not even sure if that was written by an American. Right. But the, the, the idea or the Walt Whitman idea. Henry, I think. Right? Yeah. Yes. Or like the Walt Whitman idea of, um, you know, I sing the body electric yes. and you know, it's like, it was just all about myself, uh, you know, frost in a much more sophisticated and practical way. is still, is still the negative aspects, I suppose, of being an American, mm. which is that I will, I will stand on the rock against the wind and the water. And I will be the one who says who I am. 
So when when we read works essays like Self Reliance and you know so you, you think of Emerson and, and Thoreau yes. and, and some of these very um, you know these transcendental you know poets, um, this is a very American idea oh, yeah. of this self reliance, civil disobedience. Even that, like Oh Captain, My Captain, mm-hmm. which is really hagiographic and a little scary that way. <laughs> uh, there's still some what's what's being worshipped in in the Captain in Lincoln is his auto-determination, uh, right? Yes. And it's like, we, we ought to want to be like that. And that's why it's so sad that he died because he was a man who shaped, he was a man who was himself. So is history then shaping the poetry or is poetry shaping, you know, the worldview that makes history? I think it goes both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and and certainly, so, I mean, the, the what the, the people who preceded the transcendentalists were the romantics, romantics yeah. right? And so, and the, the romantics were all about the sublime for the self, yeah. right? They just weren't changing the world yet with it. And then once everyone absorbed the lessons of the romantics, then it did, uh-huh. right? And then New England became what it was, uh-huh. right? This Unitarian, centralized, yes. uh, you know, just, just yeah. And and everyone's going to seize control of their own of their own fate. And that's going to necessarily mean that people who don't think like that are going to get run over as well. Well, that's really interesting. And, and I don't want to take this too far of a side, but then, you know, this idea of the romantics and then that kind of flows from that as the transcendentals, then the civil war just kind of disrupts all of this, you know, yes. worldview of this, you know, potential of, of but then you greatness. have like the red badge of courage, not to start going into a literature, you know, like out of poetry, but that's an extremely, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting piece of piece of literature. It's good, yeah, but it's also highly individualistic. It's sudden, suddenly for the first time, the world sees, uh, a piece of of trauma literature of 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 war literature that is supposed to be about this one individual and how he felt yes and what's interesting about that obviously stephen crane mm-hmm. is the author of red badge of courage who was you know very much um almost nihilistic in, in terms of the world's meaningless. Right. right, and, right. and so that's kind of a response even to some of these transcendental, uh, and I know we're, we're crossing boundaries. But they're here stuck in categories mm-hmm. now of individualism, ah, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. There's no way to process the world except individually. So Robert Frost, which is later, uh, reflects that, mm-hmm. right? Now, in a much more staid, trustworthy sort of way. Yes. So in reading it in poetry, we, we actually... Um, we can sort of become kind of present with it. We can kind of contemplate it. We can kind of dwell on these these ideas. Um, we almost, I don't know what the right word is here for it, but as prose, we kind of read it, we digest it, and we move on. But in poetry, we sit and kind of resonate in it and percolate. Po- right? Poetry has an earbug factor, mm-hmm. right? I mean, both the at the beginning and the end of, of that poem, we have earbugs mm-hmm. that got into the American consciousness. Yes. Right. And uh, and then therefore shaped our thinking. Yeah. You know, every public high school studies that poem to this day. And it makes sense to the modern and the postmodern. Right. That is good. That's good. Okay. So let's let's play this a little bit further. Mm. Um, I met a traveler from an antique land. Oh, that's um, that's Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the uh, you know the the giant head in the sand. Yes, and uh, look upon my works, ye mighty and despair. Yes, so this this is a great picture. I mean, uh, especially coming from Shelley, you know, this idea uh, being a second generation romantic, mm-hmm. right? So you have Coleridge and, and Wordsworth were kind of first generation, and and he's a little bit younger and much more. 
uh, licentious and, and, and lots of, you know, I'd never, I'd, I'd never had this thought until now. Yeah. And look, look, audience, what a, what beautiful moments poetry can give us. Yeah. But first and second, first to second generation, romantic mm-hmm. writers, romantic poets, that's like modernism to postmodernism. Right. Right. Yeah. There's like, you get the, you get the absolute bankruptcy yep. and then the reaction to the bankruptcy. That's, that's right. It's fascinating. Yeah, Anywho, <laughs> continue. Well, but, but the bankruptcy here he's talking about is the idea that these, you know, these great tyrants and nations that, that they are, you know, they're meaningless yes. you know, in, in the end of things. Um, and then I can't help but making this reference here, but there is a particular um, episode in the Breaking Bad series okay. <laughs> where Walter White, uh, you know, so it's Brian Cranston. So hold on, the Kepler Consortium, your source for classical education <laughs> knowledge. Go on. <laughs> well, he, but he reads. So this is a, this is a, a series about, you know, a school teacher who becomes, you know. That poems, and just remembering now, that poems in the show. Yes, he reads it. Brian Cranston, who is the character Walter White, yeah. actually opens by reading Ozymandias, huh. basically at the climax of him, you know, basically his empire collapsing. Right. The judgment is coming. Well, you know, the showmaker, uh, whose name I'm forgetting Vince right now. Gilligan? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he he used Shakespeare for yep. other other shows that he did. Yep. Uh, that's really interesting. Cla- classically informed. Um, and so, yeah, we have, a, we have a, the connection, the worldview of what that means, even in the modern world, yeah. the way it shapes, you know, somebody who's living for themselves and this is the end of it for them. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's go through a couple more here just for fun. Um, uh, I don't want to. Gonna get don't want to stump me. Yeah. Well, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want it to be too easy. These have been pretty easy. How about death? Be not proud. Death be not proud. Though some have, no wait shoot. Uh, death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me. From rest and sleep, which but the, interrupt me when I miss something. From rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be, much pleasure, therefore from thee much more must flow, and soonest our best men to thee do go, rest of their bones and souls delivery. Thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dost with war and Poppies, poison war, poison war, and sickness. Sickness dwell. Dang it! Uh, so, yeah, um, poppies come next. <laughs> shoot! Okay, I'm lost now. <laughs> no, well, you're almost at the end. Fabulous. Well, very well done. And and this is uh, written by by John Dunn. John Dunn. The the ask not for whom the bell tolls. Yes, it tolls for the right. guy. Now, John Dunn was in in college. One of my first introductions um, to. I think he was Irish, actually. Right? Um, Maybe. But, but he. Um, he wrote both secular and sacred uh-huh. in terms yes. of his early days before he, you know, gave his well, life. He to lived him. exactly. He gave his life to Christ. Yep. He, de- he definitely converted, yep. even though he probably would have called himself a Christian at every sure. point. Well, he, yeah, there was he some, became a priest. Yes. He kind of, he ran off, uh, married a woman, mm-hmm. you know, just lots of, and then converted later on. Um, and, and then his, Poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, he he really began to to write as a priest unto the Lord because he quit writing poetry for a yes. while because it was associated with that. Life. Well, and he wrote he he wrote frankly erotic poetry. Yes, right, like the flea, which high schoolers read, <laughs> yes. and some of my high schoolers at a Christian school were reading that. But uh, but like that actually translates into his, into the poetry he wrote uh, to God. Yes, like batter my heart. 
That, three, yeah, three. I mean, really, it is, you know, batter my heart, three person God. Uh, and, you know, it, the, the main image is, is of a city under siege. Yes. But the city is the church or you being pursued by God romantically, mm -hmm. really, because the word ravish is in that poem. Oh, yes. Right. You know, it's like, you know, it's like we, 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 we're resisting, but we don't want to. Right. And, then, and then there's that call, you know, uh, you, I need to be ravished by you. I forget what the line is. Maybe you have it in front of you, but, um, but yeah, so it's interesting how, you know, when he began writing sacred poetry that, you know, God used that erotic poetry he had been writing to, to bring us to, uh, to batter my heart, three person to God. And that rom that romantic idea in there of, of God taking, uh, the one he wants, Yes, you know, despite the, the protestations, <laughs> it's really fascinating. So he says, batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, or throw me and bend, you force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Like I want to love you, but I can't. I can't right? Make <laughs> yeah. me want to want yes. to, right? That's what he's saying here. Uh, reason, your victory in me uh, should defend but is captive and proved weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but I am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I accept you enthrall me. Never shall be free, nor ever chased except you ravish me. There you wow. are. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, if, if we're not attuned poetically, like we're not training ourselves to think poetically, it's possible to read that poem and although we like the language seems obvious to us now mm -hmm. because we prepped it, right. right? So everyone in the audience probably heard the erotic elements of that. Like, you know, God loves me and wants me. Um, but it would be easy if that were just in a high school textbook and we're just trying to get through a poetry unit mm -hmm. and we're not really attuned to like you know, loving the language. We might not even notice. Not even we might, notice. Oh, that's kind of a weird use of ravish. I guess those older English speakers were weird. Yeah. And we'd move on. <laughs> and not, not think about, yeah, the, the, the depth there yes. um, by, by using that word. He writes another poem, um, and I forget the name of it, maybe you remember, but uh, he, he likens their love to a compass. Mm. Uh, one of the legs of the compass is firm and stands still. That's her. The other one wanders away. Yes. But it always comes back. So, um, and, and it's almost kind of like this justification for, you know, you be the stable one in the relationship. Right. I'm going to wander around. <laughs> but, but you know, that. He does have a lot of poetry about, about wandering. Even yeah. that, you know, that, that teach me to hear mermaids sing mm -hmm. uh, one, you know, the, the same way. Yeah. All right. So fun with John Dunn here. Um, how about... Uh, there's some good ones here. And as, as you're looking for another one, I mean, ho hopefully what, uh, what the audience is gleaning from this, besides like, oh, I recognize that too, and getting to play along, um, is, is how much poetry can connect culture mm -hmm. across time and space. Right. And so right. it should be a part of our education. We should be able to, to quote or think about, or even what we're doing now in our old age, you mm -hmm. and I, he wrote that one poem, you know, where the thing happened. You yeah, remember yeah. that, right? I mean, that's, <laughs> but that's important. Well, and, and some, you know, th those are, are good conversation pieces to, you know, to, to think about. Yes. All right. How about, here's a famous one that most would, would know in a few different contexts, but we few, we happy few, a band of brothers. Oh yes. Henry V, yeah. Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think of like the Kenneth Branagh movie. Uh -huh. Where he, you know, he's making the, the the speech, and others will have will have other other associations. But that's a really great example 
of how certain lines, and of course that's from a, a play, right. right? A drama, but it was poetically written. And, uh, you know, this can just get into our everyday parlance, mm -hmm. right? We just, you know, band of brothers is a thing that, that, you know, you could use in other contexts. And for some people, there wouldn't even necessarily be a Shakespeare association. Right. It's gotten it, that far embedded. I, I, I think of uh, Stephen Ambrose right. um, when he did the Easy Company, uh, kind of a documentary novel yeah. uh, about Easy Company and they, you know, the band of brothers. And, and that's sort of what you're talking about. This is kind of rooted. It's a military sort of context, which... It yep. lends to, to to the original military kind of you know connection there, but most people probably wouldn't associate it with Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. and you know it, it, you know just the the military thing makes me think of another poem, like I say, the Charge of the Light Brigade. You know, we talked about the red badge of courage, mm -hmm. and how, you know how introspective and sort of belly buttony it, mm -hmm. it was. You know, the Charge of the Light Brigade is a poem that you know. I mean, it's it's hard for modern critics to call it great poetry, but it had such an immense cultural impact because it was the sort of poem you could print in a newspaper and it did what pretenders like who, you know, like, uh, like a crane wanted to do. It made you feel like you were there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it gave you that experience. And even for modern, you know, from, for modern you know, people who have nothing to do with the British empire, right. And may not be able to point out Crimea on a match. It doesn't matter in a match. Actually, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, co a the coach of a rugby team, okay. a high school rugby team. And, uh, uh, they were asking too many questions when I was giving them orders. And so, <laughs> uh, so I yelled the words, ours not to reason why at them. <laughs> a lot of them go to classical school. So hopefully they got it. They got, but, the, you know. they got the reference. Uh, so ours if not nothing to reason else, why, ours but to do and die. die. Well, for if, if nothing else, um, these are really good lines for parents to know so they can, you know, in, in quick moments, direct the kids. Right? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, all right. Here's, I, I, I may throw you with this. I, I may not, I'm not sure, but what about let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments? Oh, wow. Love is that not love. That sounds like, you know, I almost said that sounds like John Donne. That's Shakespeare. It is Shakespeare. Love's labor lost. No. Oh. But good I mean, guess, Joffrey. It is Thanks. a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're definitely on the, on the right track. Okay, I'll, I'll read a little bit further and see if you, love is not love, which alters when it alteration finds, removes with the uh, remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever fixed mark mm. that looks on tempest and is never shaken. Uh, is it really the tempest? Uh, no, it is okay. not the tempest. <laughs> okay, because that would have been like, come on. <laughs> uh, it is a star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool. Though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickles compass come, love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ nor no man ever loved. Wow. That's beautiful. I, you have to tell it's me what it's It's the 116th song, sonnet. Shakespeare's uh, 116th okay. song. So I, 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 you did catch me out. I, that. I, nice. I might, might throw you off there a little bit. <laughs> that was one of my earliest introductions to Shakespeare and loved it. Uh, mm -hmm. Memorized it several times, but didn't think I could probably pull it off today. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful picture. Um, and a lot of great lines in there, yeah. you know, it doesn't move with the bender to, or remove with the bender to, to be moved, <laughs> mess it up. Uh, <laughs> but the idea that you love, you know, true love doesn't move, yeah. uh, when the object being loved changes. Right? right. So, yeah, it's beautiful. And, you know, it, it is funny to like, this is an example of, of, of how poetry is, is ear buggy. Uh, 
I knew it was Shakespeare. <laughs> I was, you know, after I got past my little, hey, is that John Donne? I, uh, I had no doubt in my mind it was Shakespeare. But that was all I knew. Sure. Right. But like somewhere in there, something had stuck. And that's a, that's something that we want to include in our children's education. Get sure. that stuff stuck. It's because of my mother that I can recite parts of The Merchant of Venice, that mm -hmm. I can recite parts of The Tempest, the parts of the Bible I can still recite. It's because of my mom. Yeah. That's wonderful. And and even if we don't completely remember every, you know, jot and tittle of it, every every part of it. There's jot and some, tittle, King James. Yes. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> some some part that, you know, it's referential in the sense that it connect it's a kind of copiousness, right? Yes. That kind of connects us to something like, you know, I can go find that and look it up and there's a context. So let's that's, pause. You know, I think a lot of our listeners are gonna be quite familiar with that term, copiousness. Mm -hmm. But let's let's unfold it. Yeah, absolutely. So what is copiousness? So copiousness is the idea that it's not that we compile a whole bunch of just random quotes in a pile that we can throw out anytime, but it's being copious is that we are connected um, or, or we, we have, you know, maybe collecting commonplaces through memorizing scripture and poetry and, and great lines from literature that we in some way connect with the world um, around us yeah. and how these ideas shape our worldview, how they shape our thought. And they become sort of commonplaces, like a, uh, an internal collection of commonplaces that really give us an answer. Yeah, they're, and they're not for quoting or citing, although that can be fun. It's to give depth to everything you're saying. It does. It gives it texture. It gives depth. It gives context to situations. I mean, if I was to, to say that it's a universal, uh, see, I'm going to mess that up. Uh, it's, it's a universal truth, or it's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man with a fortune is in want of a wife. <laughs> it's a very opening line of Pride and Prejudice, uh -huh. right? Okay. But it's a very poetic line yes. uh, in terms of, you know, this sets the whole context um, for a kind of culture, this right. culture of, you know, um, a man with a fortune, he must be wanting a wife. And, and so what Jane Austen does with this, um, you know, she basically brings to life an entire world, a culture of the importance of marriage, the importance of, of a household. And it gives some context to, you know, whether it's the girl's giddiness in, in the yeah. story or the arrogance of, you know, the wealthy man, you know. Right. So so these are a kinds of terms that, you know, when when we're connected to them, different situations in life give us like, oh, and and you know that you, you're beginning to have some copiousness when you experience a situation and you say, oh, that reminds me of this poem. Yes, or, That reminds me of this story, right? Yep. Yeah. And you want that. And you, you want to be able to possibly even like, you know, actually directly trot that out. Like it's easy for me to imagine speaking to an older, like say someone in his late 20s, early 30s is not married yet. Not only will all of that background be in my mind, as I'm talking to him, I might actually even trot out that line. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and just just because what it does is it tells the hearer, you're not you're not just giving your opinion. There's a lot of weight behind you. There's Other some timelessness. People. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But there's some timelessness to that, to that. You know, there's there's gravitas. Right. You know, to this idea. And it's so beautifully said that you feel like <laughs> yeah, I couldn't say it better I myself. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I must. All right, let's try one more. Okay. Let's, let's see if we have time. For, yeah. I think we've got time for one more here. Um, I don't want to see. Let's do not with a bang, 
but a whimper. Oh, that's Elliot. Yes. Yeah. One of my favorite poets, even though his early project was to disrupt and destroy poetry. Yeah. Really, honestly, I, th I think that's the case. But he became a Christian. And as far as I'm concerned, to cast all his previous work in a new light. I think it absolutely. I, I think the fact that Wasteland is followed by the four quartets. Yes. Elliot really is able to touch something about the culture in the early 20th century yes. that we can still resonate. Like we can almost be transported back to that time yep. just by reading Elliot's Absolutely, because he, he was examining the collapse of modernism yes. with an unjaundiced eye, Yep, right? Not as a Christian. And then, of course, that led him straight to God. Right. Right. So then at that point, it's like, well, while everything changes, all the poetry changes, but there's still a truth in everything he was saying. And it actually makes a lot of the, the fragmented or disjointed nature of his previous poetry make sense in that context. It, you know, it's almost like you want to read the, you know, the whole opus as one work, you know? Right. Well, and, and it does, as, as you said, you as a Christian, even though he may not have written the wasteland as a Christian, he wrote it Honestly, you yes. know, there, there's a truth to what he's writing that, I mean, I think it, it frankly had a part probably um, in his conversion. I mean, there yeah. were other factors in that, but there played a part in the fact that he's looking at this. I mean, he's looking into the void. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and so much good poetry was written in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, one of the things we need to realize is that, you know, poetry doesn't always have to be about rhyme or mm -hmm. verse structures but poetry is always lyrical and so there you know there were some there were some modern poet poets who basically tried to destroy poetry taking away the beauty of language uh, and just you know lines that read like dull lines from a bad novel yeah right but you know then there are other poets who who were truly and purposely lyrical Mm -hmm. And we need to recognize that, you know, there was there was a lot of great thought in that. A lot of them were Christians, um, but also these are highly quotable things sure. that can become a part of how we talk about uh, these cultures. You know, before you, before you, I'm going to sidetrack you for a second. So before you go into some of these quotables, and I think this would be a great way for us to kind of wrap up, except I do want to ask you if you would read one of your own poems before we go. Oh, so, okay. Um, but. I'm wondering if um, so. You were you were talking about you know the lyrics, uh, lyrical language, um, and, and that importance, the way that the music of language sticks with us. But um, and you can probably speak more to this. It was recently, uh, and I say recently within the last couple of years that I learned. I, I didn't know this that the rhyme. So foot and meter in poetry go all the way back to Homer, right? Yes. Okay. But it's later on in the Gothic period, the Goths actually introduce rhyme. And mm -hmm. I don't know if that's something you could maybe talk about for a second. Yeah. Well, is so- Is that good or bad or is that important or is it unimportant for poetry? I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a function of the structure of Germanic languages and then English really leaned into that even further. Mm -hmm. um, so- in the Romance languages, we'll just use that as an example where we are familiar with, with how they work by studying Latin. Um, rhyming is not difficult. Mm -hmm. 
right? I mean, sure. they're, they're very In similar Italian, endings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so it's not something that poets would strive for. Who, mm-hmm. who cares that it rhymes? You know, like, you know, that's so easy to do, which is why it's funny sometimes to listen to French or Portuguese rap. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, it's, uh, and, you know, it, it, it even, because so English is a stress-timed language mm-hmm. and the Romance languages um, are all syllable-timed. I think Greek is syllable-timed as well. Right. And that means that, that's actually why English is so rhythmic and why we contract so often. Mm-hmm. We contract because our language, uncon- we don't know this, most of us, we're speaking English, we don't know this, but the language requires that um, the beat shape the words. Mm, interesting. Right? Yeah. So it depends on how fast you're talking, of course, but you automatically, as you speed up or slow down, you're keeping that a, a certain tempo. Right. Um, so you squeeze words together, you say something so, uh, faster, you say others slower. Which is why meter matters so much in, in English and why meter is is oriented around stresses as opposed to long or short, which is what Latin oh, did. Right. Right. Okay. So a great example of what you're talking about with the Germ- Germanic languages and the Goths is uh, is Spanish poetry. Okay. Right. And they actually so English was highly impacted centuries later by the Italians. Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, before that, it went the other way. So uh, a good example of that is the Spanish poem, El Cantar del Mio Cid, <laughs> the song of my Cid, okay? <laughs> and uh, it's about this, uh, this guy, this great warrior, a mythic figure in Spanish, um, in, in Spanish history. You know, there, there are many historical documents about him. He was effectively a warlord. He fought mostly the Muslims, but kingdoms, but he fought Christian kingdoms too. And, you know, it took 500 years for the... Reconquista to sort itself out, right? So there's this epic poem. And Spanish has changed a lot less than English. Mm -hmm. So you can, you know, almost read it as a modern Spanish speaker. But it's funny, if you read it, so I speak Portuguese and I studied a little Latin, those things help me too. It's Mm -hmm. a really fascinating text. But the most fascinating thing about it, Spain was settled by the Goths. Uh, The Romans invited them in. mm Mm-hmm. And if you study this, 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 the history of Spain, you will read about the Gothic kingdoms. And it was the Gothic kingdoms of Spain who began to speak a sort of vulgar Latin that eventually became Spanish that the Islamic hordes conquered at first, not all of them, but most of them, right? And, and then this, the reconquest came from that. That's why Spanish has names like Alfredo and Alberto. Oh, Those are German names, mm-hmm. right? Interesting. So when you read El Cid, it has the caesuras that Beowulf has. Interesting. You know, it has the, like the little the line, the mm-hmm. pause, beat pause and another line. Um, there's some rhyming. Uh, so the, the rhyming is in there. Um, but then there's, it's also more rhythmic okay. than, than Spanish poetry uh, had been previously and even would subsequently be. You really feel the Germanicness of this, even as you're reading it in Spanish. Interesting. Uh, because, but because it's Gothic, right? Uh, so, but English is so unlike the other languages that have sort of established the literature of the West because it is stress timed. Um, and like a, another Germanic device, which you see a lot in El Cid, but another Germanic device is alliteration. Okay. Right. Um, 
English words, Anglo-Saxon words, Germanic words. I, I'm about to say this. You guys are all going to think of ridiculous words in German that are like, you know, put together. But <laughs> the words are shorter. Mm -hmm. Right. And that means that alliteration is really interesting in English. Okay. Right. Uh, full fathoms five. Thy father lies of his bones or corals made. Right. So it's you can't really do that in, in a romance language because every one of those words has like three or four syllables. Interesting. Right? Okay. Yes. Um, so, yeah. So anyway. So I so, feel like I'm getting an, uh, an education <laughs> here. Seriously. <laughs> this is no, this is fa fabulous. I almost forget what the original question was. Oh, we talked about <laughs> gothic poetry and introducing rhyme. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not sure how to connect this back to the episode, but I've sure enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> this no, this is this is this is very fascinating because there are so many connections. There's there so many what you know we'd often call a digressio mm -hmm. in terms of the way the language works and, and the way poetry works. So I didn't mean to throw you for a loop there, but that was really great. No, yeah, great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> oh man, yeah. All right. Well, uh, does this is that my uh, my cue then? You look you staring at me for me to read uh, <laughs> one of my own poems. Or <laughs> Uh, I would love for you to, if, if you're, if you're able to, or if you've got one. Yeah. Um, if you'll indulge me, I'll read two. I'd love it. Okay. Uh, well, the first one is called fairies. And this is really just, uh, it's, it's supposed to be, well, first of all, never introduce your, your poems with long introductions. Okay. Let me introduce my poem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be playful, but also, um, hopefully a little, a little frightening. Okay. It's called Fairies. We waited a long time for him to show. I wished that I had learned to tell him no. We're hunting woodsy creatures through the snow. We've waited a long time for them to show. We have not yet begun to fight our foe, he shouted from the very backest row. The woodsy creatures hunt us to and fro. I wish that I had learned to tell them no. Bravo. No, thank you. <laughs> I was trying to think of, uh, of, a, of a word that would rhyme. With <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Bravo. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll no, read. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. Uh, well, so I'll, I'll read now a poem that I wrote actually while I was working for a ministry that um, uh, recorded uh, Bibles in minority languages as they were translated. Okay. And... Um, I ended up reading about this woman in Chile who died maybe about 10 years ago, and she was the last speaker of her language. Wow. And, of course, her language never got a Bible. Uh, but, yeah, so it's called The Last Speaker of Sandy Point. And you'll find that this is much less structured than the previous one. Uh, so, and actually, since we were, we were, we were, we were talking technique, um, this uh, this really relies very heavily on alliteration. Okay, right. So, so it's supposed to be lyrical, mm -hmm. um, but you'll feel there's a little bit of a meter sometimes. But really, the the, the technical emphasis in this is alliteration, and therefore, you know, like the rhythm in tight spaces. Okay, so your first one relied there was there was a lot of uh, rhyme yes. in the first, and this is going to be more alliteration. Right. Or, okay. Very good. The last speaker of Sandy Point. Hidden among houses, not hers, last speaker sits silent. This was all hers once, barely before ever her birth. Her people put on pelts for the wet and wavering winds, which for layered lifespan spared them the Spaniards. How many words there once were to say stone on this island she regrets to no longer remember, as old as she is, as the spray and spew, the gray and blue water, trees, sky, nothing beyond but the ocean her people never mastered. Last speaker is as dotted as documented by xenologists listed at length, linguists, missionaries, missionary linguists, but they look no longer. She is the last. 
There is no one to speak to. She sits silent, listless amidst the dwellings of the southern sea's masters who smooth the sea with their sails. To her has been granted to hear over the warring of waters a babble of tongues, Teutonic, Spanish, and the Slavic of Sandy Point, yes. There are more Croatians on this island than ever were her people. They build box homes corrugated and slat. They board boats for big catches, wrestling in their nets enough new life to feed not only their people, but to ship it north, to give life to the whole earth. Its fish markets are fed with Chilean sea baths straight from her people's cradle here, the end of the world. Fascinating. I love it. I don't know if it's because of the story behind it and in, in hearing that, but that was... Um um, it was moving. Heavy, yes. <laughs> it was, and and I also, in a uh, technical sense, so obviously the alliteration is very prominent, but there was some assonance in there as well. Yeah, the the uh, the vowel sounds uh, also rhyming, but uh, yeah, yeah. I and you know, it. by doing by doing that, you know, hopefully one creates you know this, this sort of tight mm -hmm. feeling. Like it might even have seemed a few times like it was almost rapping, but there was no, there were no rhymes. Yeah, you know, yeah. Beautiful. Thank very, you. very, very beautiful. So just as a last word, I, I would, you know, prefer to just end it on that. But for last word, what is, you know, somebody who's listening to this and they really want to become more poetic? Um, they, they want, I mean, I know the obvious answer would go, go read poetry, but where should they start? Where would be a good place to introduce poetry into our education? Well, I, I, th I think one great place to start would be with Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, m make sure that when you are studying Shakespeare, it's not all silent. Okay. You know, try to read group it in groups of people, read it out loud. Yeah. You know, if you're reading a certain play, you know, Google that play plus the word poetry. See, see what comes out. I mean, you know, the, the Full Fathoms 5 line that mm -hmm. I quoted is from The Tempest. Um, there are performances just of those little few of lines. Those lines, wow. Uh, that, you know, that the actors have put online. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, it, there are, there are spaces like in scripture, <laughs> if I dare <laughs> say Shakespeare as in scripture, yeah. um, but where the, the poetry gets a lot tighter. Right. Like it's like, wow, this is visibly, it's not just lyrical. Like this right here is tight. Yes. Um, and you want to read those, those, those things out loud and the quality of mercy is not strained, etc. Um, so I think that would be a great place to start. And that would give you a lot of, of cultural reference as well. Wonderful. Right. Um, no, favorite poems of mine, uh, Jared Manley Hopkins, mm -hmm. um, who was very much informed by Milton. Yep. Right. So, you know, Milton is great. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I would read his shorter poems, uh, but stay away from his poems with Italian names. Okay. So <laughs> uh, things like um, um, uh, there's one about the uh, the martyrs in the Piedmont in Italy being slain. But anyway, but Hopkins and Hopkins is actually interesting to read. If you get into English language poetry, he had a philosophy of how to write Anglo-Saxon poetry. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and he shaped a whole generation of the good moderns because he wouldn't publish his stuff. Mm -hmm. he, uh, and so decades after he, he died, his friend, published Robert Bridges, who was a poet laureate of, of England at the time, published his book in 1918. Wow. Well so after he had well died. After he was, and okay. so then that, that actually shaped a lot of modern poetry, but it's, you know, he was a Jesuit priest. His stuff is, is often very devotional, mm -hmm. uh, but also strongly Anglo-Saxon, strong stress, um, strong alliteration, really interesting to read. So okay. I would recommend Hopkins as well. Okay. So Shakespeare and Hopkins, that's there the place to start. <laughs> and then obviously, as we said in the very beginning, the King James Bible yes. is, and I think you've said that in other episodes, that just the poetry and the language there is, uh, you know, 
it's obviously brilliant and yeah. lovely. So, and you know, I would I would urge people. You know, so we're going to talk about foreign languages. I, I think a few times in these uh, yep. coming weeks, and I'm a foreign language teacher, but um, love English and try to play. You know, like try to actually say things cleverly sometimes or with a phrase that you throw. Alliteration is a great way to go about this. Sure. Right. Because it's something that comes easily and naturally to English speakers. Just try to th say things in a funny way where people stop and go, ooh. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I, in a college class I was taking in writing, we had to come up with 200. Like our big project was 200 original metaphors. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. that was, I mean, and, and so you're saying read poetry, but also practice writing in, in terms of maybe not a full poem or you could do that, but, but you know, turns of phrases and, and yeah, you know, be literature. casually clever. Yeah. Casually clever. I love it. <laughs> well, I think with that, <laughs> we, we'll end on being casually clever. Thanks, everybody. So long. <laughs>